Last Sunday, I invited us to do something special, and that's kind of like where I'd, uh, I would choose to start out today. The end of last Sunday, I suggested that each one of us might have a vision of our own life in its full perfection. And by that I meant for each one of us to create sort of an idealized vision, a, a kind of a mental painting, a, a mental equivalent, if you will, of your own life at its peak, at its perfection, at its, at its ability to be all and do all that you would want. And my promise last week was, today we were gonna learn how to achieve that. And I am gonna get there, I promise. <laughs> but I want us to again, once again, bring into our awareness what our highest and best really is. I wanna start from a different angle today. How many of the folks here in this room are familiar with the idea of the American dream? Okay, and, and a lot of us I know are maybe familiar with it kind of starting after World War II with the idea of the service people coming back from overseas and, and new jobs and families really starting out to, to build a, a solid life for themselves. But you know what actually started a couple decades earlier than that. In, in 1931, um, a, a wonderful um, um, well, politician and essayist of the day named James Adam, here is what he said about the American dream. This is from 1931. He said, the American dream is a national ethos of the United States, a set of ideals in which freedom includes the opportunity for prosperity and success, for upward social mobility achieved through hard work. Life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability, achievement, and effort. How do we feel about this? There are a couple things, you know. I, uh, actually, from the get-go, two things occur to me. One is that as Americans, I think a part of us is absolutely programmed with this. And, and whether in our childhoods or through friends, through, through school or not, we, we kind of programmed with the idea of, of things progressing, that our, um, um, if, if you will, our um, social indexes would improve over time, that if we, if we put in the effort that our financial position would improve, that if we, if we strive hard enough, our um, social place in society will improve, that, that through our, our efforts and hard work, things will get better. I wanna ask you though, better than what? Better than who? I want to really ask you, what does this idea of better mean? In terms of the, the world right now, I don't think that there are very many countries that have a higher standard of living than America. I, I think some people might argue that Sweden does. Some people might argue that Japan does right now. The jury is out because we're all pretty close. If you, if you try to allow for variances of currency and ownership and some of the laws, I would say um, those three countries, including ours, and, and followed shortly by Great Britain and Australia and some others, are kind of at the top in terms of standard of living. But does that actually make us happier? You know, they've done some studies recently on happiness, and they've done their best to, to leave out the cultural biases and language biases and things like that. Guess where the happiest place on the planet is right now? It's in India. 
It's actually in, in some rather poorer sections of India where people who are answering the surveys are almost uniformly happy. Believe me, India is not on that top 10 list of, of places that are in, enjoying high standards of living. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll phrase this question of our ideal life another way. Is it maybe not material wealth? Is it maybe not the stuff we have could it be happiness? What I do know is that each person in this room has an idea of what that dramatically lovely, welcoming, peaceful, joyous, abundant life would be like. And it's different for each one of us. I do know this. But I want to make sure, before we go on with the sermon to tell you how to get that, I want to make sure that you're going to get what really you personally would benefit from. Because what I do know is that if we buy into the American dream, it not only may bring us some of the things that would be pleasurable, but that whole ethos of the American dream, right, is also to work hard and struggle. I want to use an example from my own life. Uh, about 25 years ago, I was working for the telephone company, and I was a, a, a fairly new into management, and, and the, the, man, the higher levels of management had finally gotten over the idea that I was gay. Uh, but, but, well, you know, this was the thing 25 years ago, and they weren't sure for some time that, that a gay man could actually represent a company in the business world. But they, they finally got over that and, and recognized, actually, I was a darn good employee, and, and it actually a, a darn good manager and so they thought they would put me on the fast track to upper management and I was doing pretty well and I got to tell you there's that allure out there isn't it success in the business world and and promotion and the ideas of benefits and stock options and I mean even just saying it my eyes are starting to light up a little <laughs> bit aren't they yeah and, and, and the idea kind of that you were being favored and kind of moved along into this and, and all was fine and I was excited until they uh, announced one day that I'd be moving to Omaha, Nebraska. And I went, Omaha, Nebraska? I mean, no, no offense to anyone from the Midwest, but, you know, having been born in Oregon and spent a few winters in the Midwest over the course of my life, I'm going, Really? <laughs> And see, this was the deal. This was the deal. When you buy into someone else's idea of success, when you buy into someone else's system of promotion and someone else's idea of what's good and proper and progressive and successful, you've got to buy it all. You can't just pick and choose. And at that time, young executives, yes, the idea was that you would, that you would be uprooted from everything that you knew and loved and proved yourself in, you know, hostile territory. <laughs> that was the plan. That was the idea. And I got to tell you, it took me a few weeks to decide if this dream of success and furthermore, this American dream, if you will, was for me. It wasn't for me. <laughs> it wasn't for me. And you know what? They never asked me again. 
Because that also goes with other people's ideas of promotion. That goes with other systems of success. When you buy in to a system, it's for you. And when you don't, it's not. Now, I'm not unhappy with the career I had at the telephone company. It was a great place to work. But I got to tell you, when you stop playing the game fully, you're not in the game anymore. So back to my idea of success, back to my idea of the perfect life for you all, I want to make sure, as your minister, that it's your dream. I want to make sure that you're not plugging in to the idea of success based on what was true for your parents. I want to make sure that when you have an idea of what a loving and true relationship it is, it isn't based on the Twilight Saga at the movies. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We have any number of things that are presented as this is the way you're supposed to live. This is the way you're supposed to be. This is how relationships look. This is what your home is supposed to be like. True love looks like this. A, a family is supposed to be shaped in a certain way. Are you going to buy into this? There are elements of it that maybe are true for you, but I would suggest that there are elements that are not true for you. That the American dream may be fine for what it was, but do you want to buy into it? Do you really want to go into that whole system of nose to the grindstone, working really hard so that you can, what, get ahead? And what does ahead mean? There was an entire presidential campaign back in the early part of the last century based on a chicken in every pot and a garage, and a car in every garage, right? Well, okay, so I guess we've made progress. Because right now, most of us do have a chicken to put in our pot, and most of us have a car in our garage. Is that success? And if this is the American dream to always be better, are we looking forward to having two chickens in the pot and two cars in the garage? Do you know what I mean? This is madness. If it's simply about getting more, if it's simply about doing a little better than our parents, if it's simply about, well, in another 10 years, I should have a house that's 30% more expensive. Do you know what I mean? Is this what you want? So again, take a breath. <sighs> what is your life to be? Certainly it's not just somehow earning more money than last year. Somehow it's not surely just buying a new car or, or making some kind of progress that's measured by social status or, or measured by economic forces or, or measured by your ability to buy or put things on credit. Surely that's not what it is. Now, I don't know what it is for each of you as individuals, because each one of us, I think, have a unique combination that would make our lives sing, and it's based on factors of love and, and joy and peace and a certain combination that, that appeals to your heart and your heart alone, and you know what it is, and all I ask is that it is yours. That you, um, if you will resist plugging into someone else's dream. 
Unless you want to buy the whole American dream, don't buy it. Make up your own dream. Unless you want to have a dream that is the, the political dream or the uh, uh, American sweetheart dream. Or, do you know what I mean? All of these are well-defined patterns. The American sweetheart dream, I think, is really interesting. It's where you fall in love with your first girl in high school, and that's the person you marry, and you live happy uh, ever after for the rest of your life. Oh my God, has this trapped so many people in misery? When we're 16 years old, do you think we know what love is? Is love the first person that says yes? Well, now think about it. In high school it is. And if the sweetheart dream is the first person you fall in love with, oh my God, right? (laughs) Okay. Enough about following patterns. They are out there. Make sure they're... Yeah, exactly. Make sure that if you're going to fall into following a pattern, that it really is one that you buy into wholeheartedly. Don't just take the easy way out. Don't just do things the way your parents did. Don't just follow the American dream because it's a well-established guideline. I, for one, don't want to work hard. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there are Sundays, I admit, when I go home that I feel like I put in a full day. Don't get me wrong. But I want to work in a way that's pleasurable to me. I don't want the nose to be on the grindstone or whatever those crazy metaphors are. I want to enjoy life. And I don't want to make progress just to be able to say I have a new car every year. I don't want to be making progress just so that my bank account's expanding. It's like, so what? These may or may not be useful, but all of the, st- the world studies show it's not going to make me happy. Happiness is here. Happiness is what we create of it. Okay, enough about that. I want you all, in your own mind, to plan what your ideal life would be like, because now we're going to go for it. And I'm going to start in kind of an unusual place, I think. You know, we're not much for Bible quotes around here, but I'm going to I'm going to try one on for size for you because I think it's interesting. Most of us have had some experience in hearing world creation myths or ideas, right? And there are a couple in the Old Testament. Uh, one of my favorite ones is, uh, is in Hindu mythology that the world was created on the back of a turtle moving forward. And that, that slow, beautiful, majestic idea of the sun orbiting in the cosmos is the back of the turtle moving slowly forward. Lots of wonderful metaphors. You know, one of the most interesting one, though, is in um, the chapter of John, the very first chapter of the book of John in the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, notice it says the Word and not a Word. And this is a very specific biblical reference. If you look back at the Greek translations, it, the word is actually logos. And it means something more than just a collection of words. The idea of logos was it, it's a system of living. It's, a, it's an intentional set of beliefs and ways of being in the world. And you might think of it, because we have brought the the idea of the word forward. Have you ever heard someone say something like, uh, I promise to keep my word? Not just a word, not just a certain set of words, but you can count on me, my word is good. 
Have you heard those kind of phrases? That's left over from that idea of logos. And it isn't just that a certain word that, I, you know, that I'm not going to lie in a certain instance. The idea is I will be true to what is true to me. That what I hold to be true and good, I will be faithful to it. That is the idea of the logos. That is the idea of our word. And that's exactly what's being talked about in the chapter of John here. And God used this power to actually create the universe. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was this idea of a celestial heaven. In the beginning was this idea of God's that, you know, it'd be kind of cool to do this universe thing. (laughs) And then the word was with God, meaning that God took that idea of the cosmos, that idea of all creation, and out of itself in a powerful act of creation, created the universe. Would you buy into it if I said you had that same power? Let's get started with a a joke about power. A DEA officer stops at a ranch in Montana and talks with an old rancher. He says to the rancher, I need to inspect your land for illegally grown drugs. The old rancher says, well, okay, but I better tell you, you're not to go into that field over there. Well, the DEA officer basically explodes. Mister, I have the full authority of the federal government with me. Reaching into his jacket, he removes his badge, proudly displays it, and says, see this badge? It allows me to go wherever I want. No questions asked. Now, do you understand, mister? Well, the old rancher nods politely, apologizes a bit, and goes about his business. Pretty soon, the old rancher hears a whoop and a holler and sees the DEA officer running for his life, chased by his favorite bull. (laughs) With every step, the bull is gaining ground and the officer is terrified. The old rancher leans over the railing of the fence, says at the top of his lungs, Your badge! Don't forget to show him your badge! You have true power. You know, a lot of times we look to characters from the Bible, whether it be Moses or Jesus, or we look in other faith traditions like the Buddha and Kuan Yin, and we think these are people who had real power. Look at the miracles they created. Whether it's the, the healing of the sick, whether it's the raising of the dead, the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, you look at Moses, my gosh. It's like, wouldn't it have been nice to have been his friend? Do you, know, do you know what I mean? But do you think that Moses has more power than you do? I don't believe so. Now, I, I, I might be a, a bit heretical here, but I think that we all have the same absolute degree of God-given power, the same ability to create our universe around us through the power of our word. But I will tell you, those people have something that very few of us do have, and that is the faith in our word. When we talk about this idea of being true to our word or the power of our word, again, we're back to that idea of logos. We're back to that that picture of our life the way we want it. And the difference between us and a Kuan Yin or a Lao Tzu is that we perhaps don't have the strength of our conviction to be true to that word. 
Do you know what I mean by that? We think of it in terms of laws, right? And most of us are, would consider ourselves to be law-abiding officials, right? Uh, how is it when we're in with the, the tax advisor? How is it when we get a, a, a traffic ticket that we don't think that, you know, it was just a California stop. I'm mostly stopped. You know, no one was at the intersection, right? See, I think we've got some of that going on in our own spiritual power. Our spiritual power is unlimited, but in our faith in it, our ability to move forward in it, I think we're a little bit like that. So what would it be like if we were going to back up the power of our word with our full intention? Because that's what I would like us to move forward into this coming week. I think each of us could pick an area of our own life where we're going to explore this idea of logos. Now, it might be in a relationship. Um, think for a minute of what a, a perfect, loving, and intimate relationship might be like. Or it might be in an area of uh, success at work. You know, what, really what we were talking about earlier, take a segment of your life, your life, again, not the, the pre-planned American dream, not the, you know, the, the corporate structure, unless that's what you want. So, so clearly take in your own mind some area of your life, visualize it perfectly, and what would it be like to keep to this logos? What would it be like to fully back up in a Christ-like way, in a Buddha-like way, this nature, this idea, this mental equivalent of what you want? Well, what I know is you would have to back that up with your actions, with your feelings, and with your thoughts. And here's the rub. Here's where maybe Moses had a little more experience than us. Here's where maybe the Buddha had a little bit more practice because they, to a greater degree than most of us, could pull this off. When something to the contrary would come Moses' way, he would just fold his arms and say, well, that may be true. Nevertheless, <laughs> you know, and the Red Sea parts, Right? We have to be willing, if we wish our lives to go that well, if we wish to see miracles in our own lives, if we want to see the life that we dream, we have to put 100%, maybe 110%. <laughs> I'm not very mathematically inclined, but what I know is we have to give it our all. When we have thoughts to the contrary of this dream, what we're doing is we're lying to ourselves. We're going back on our own word, that idea of logos, which is our word, when we don't stay true to it, when we don't accept it fully in our heart, when we think of reasons that it shouldn't be true for us, we're actually going back, we're fiddling with that picture of truth for ourselves. I think of it as the Yabbits syndrome. Have any of you had the Yabbits? <laughs> Probably so. It's, it's like when you have this picture of the way life should be, and then the flat tire comes up, and you go, well, yeah, but, you know, I, I would have been on my path to glory, but I had to change the tire. I would be in that place of knowing a perfect love between my, me and my partner, but then we had this argument, and he's an asshole anyway. Do you know, do you know what I mean? And when, and when we do that, we are sabotaging ourselves. 
we're saying that I'm going to deny the truth of my word. We're saying that the picture I have of love and light and goodness isn't true for me anymore. And so, of course, we get a mixed picture of how the way the world works. When we don't have clarity in our own mind, when we go back on our own word, when we get into arguments, when, I mean, think of it. On the one hand, we have the ideal of love and joy and peace in a relationship, and then we start fighting. I mean, I can see getting right up to it, but when we get right up to it and go, oh, what should we do? We should back right up away from it, right? Because the ideal of love isn't fighting. The idea of love isn't uh, about conflict or one-upmanship or, or uh, you know, getting the last word in it. You know, a friend of mine once said, well, it's all very interesting, Larry, but do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? <laughs> now, I happen to believe that most of us actually in our hearts want to be happy. Occasionally, we have to put aside all of the annoyances and things that come up and recognize that they are temporary, recognize that they don't define us, recognize they're things that just happened. And our logos, our word, the truth of who we are, the joy that we expect in our lives, the beauty that we want to experience, the good, good, good things of our universe, we have to hold on to them and give them our 100% in our words in our thoughts, in our actions, in our deeds, even, even in our emotions, we have to be able to hold on to those things if we want them to as peer, appear as powerfully as the miracles did for Moses, as, as powerfully as, uh, as any biblical figure or, or any uh, ascended master or anyone that we look up to as achieving great things in this world. They didn't fall into those things. You have the same power that they had, all of us do, are we going to use that power? Are we going to stay true to our word? Okay, the place to start, just take one area of your life, picture it fully in its glory, Picture it to the highest and best that you can imagine it. It might be a relationship. It might be a family arrangement. It might be your vocation. It, it might be a, um, your financial success. It might be a, a new program or a new job or, or whatever it is. Picture it in its highest. Make sure that it's yours, not someone else's idea of success. Make sure it's what you want to do and what you want to experience. And then keep to this logos. Keep your word to yourself through your actions, your thoughts, even your emotions and your deeds, and you will have an outrageous, miraculous success. It's the only difference between you and any radically successful figure from history. The only difference is keeping your word going to close today with a quote from this lovely book of Ernest Holmes called Think Your Troubles Away. We're using it, or I should say I'm using it, for inspiration this week. This material that I've been talking about came out of the chapter called Your Word is Law. And here's the way he talks about this. He says, we are intelligent beings. We're living in an intelligent universe, and it responds to our mental states. Insofar as we learn to control our mental states, 
we shall automatically control our world. This is what is meant by the practical application of the principles of science of mind to the problems of everyday living. This is what is meant by demonstration. This is what is meant by the power of your word. Let us pray. There is one life. There is one light. There is one goodness. There is one consciousness. It is this thing that I call God. But whatever it is known by, it is everything. Every person, every place, everything, every situation. It is the power of the universe. And it is present for everyone. This means me. I know that my life is powerful. That the creative power of my own thoughts, my own logos, my own word is at work in the world bringing me that which I choose to experience. And as it is true for me, I know without question it is true for each person in this room. That heart's desire, that mental equivalent, that perfection of living that each person in this room imagines, as the word is kept, the reality is made. And so for each person here, I know there is a greater willingness to go with that mental equivalent, to stay true to the logos and the word of the life that you choose to have, and that in word, in thought, in emotion, and in deed, you continue on your path of success, your path of glory, your path of love, your unique path. This is the truth for everyone here. I claim it, I know it, I recognize it. It is true. And so it is with great love, it is with great gratitude that I simply acknowledge this time of prayer. I acknowledge this time of possibilities turning into realities. I acknowledge God. I just let it be, and so it is. So it is. Thank you for being here today. Thank you.